Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with Kelly Starrett and Juliet Starrett talking about movement. And it turns out that we all could use a little more movement all, all throughout our day, that our bodies are really built to move. And these two have uncovered a lot of research about how movement affects the body and how we can incorporate small movement practices throughout our day that can have a big impact in our mental functioning, our, the, the chances that we'll die um, in the coming years, in all aspects of health and well-being. Kelly is the co-author of the New York Times bestsellers, Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's also the co-founder of The Ready State and the co-founder of San Francisco CrossFit. Juliet is an entrepreneur, attorney, author, and podcaster. She's the co-founder and CEO of The Ready State and the co-founder and former CEO of San Francisco CrossFit. She was also a professional whitewater paddler, winning three world championships and five national titles. Together, Kelly and Juliet are the authors of the new book, Built to Move, the 10 essential habits to help you move freely and live fully. Kelly and Juliet, thank you so much for coming on the show. Our background is we were both professional athletes ourselves, and then we have been working in the health, fitness, well-being, wellness space for the last 20 years, um, but primarily working with high performers, um, trying to figure out how we can make athletes and coaches, the teams and the people who are trying to athletically perform at their best, like what, what little levers can we pull to help them be faster, stronger, go better at their sport? How can we support coaches and teams in creating a better culture and athletes who are more durable? And that, that was our interest for the vast majority of our professional lives. But there were a couple of things sort of layered into that, which I think are particularly relevant for this audience, is that you know, we live in a, a suburban town north of San Francisco. Uh, raising our two kids there, we happen to be friends with a lot of the parents of our um, kids' friends who are in our neighborhood. And all of those people share something in common, which is they care about being healthy, but they are not nerds about it the way Kelly and I Kelly and I want to sit around when they're together like, jobs. yeah they have regular jobs and they're busy trying to raise their kids and work and just survive being parents and working people but but at the same time they do care about being healthy they just don't want to talk about and help and wellness at the dinner table the way Kelly and I want to and what we found in our community is that we became what we call the node of all things health, wellness, and fitness, even though certain in certain areas we we would consider ourselves experts. But what I like to say is on any given day in our neighborhood, someone's knocking on our door. 
They have, they're calling in because they have low back pain and they're not sure what to do. So we, we pass them walking in the street and they want to know whether they should be doing intermittent fasting or the keto diet or paleo diet or maybe Mediterranean diet. But they, they know they should exercise, but they're not quite sure how much, for how long, what type of exercise. Is it strength training? Is it cardio? Is it a mix of both? And basically what I'm telling you is that what we saw was that there was a massive amount of confusion amongst a group of people who have more access to information than ever. But despite all that access to information, people are confused and they're not sure what message does what messages to follow, which ones to disregard. What we felt like is that what was out there in the world coming from our our space really wasn't serving people and wasn't accessible to most but people. You could just look at anything yeah. obesity, diabetes, uh, substance abuse, mental health, injury, social isolation, choose something and then just do the same as your third party validation. How's it working? It's not working at all. Yeah, like we're doing our industry, Kelly and I give us like a D or an F. We're not doing a great job. Inside inside our name. Yeah, we're doing a lot of talking and we're making ourselves better and more optimized, but we have not stepped out of our own vertical to try to bring more people into this conversation in a relatable way. And one of the big things is that I think one of the challenges for normal people is that they see all these people in the health and wellness and fitness industry, many of whom are actually doing this, and that is they're spending 24 hours a day optimizing their health. Yeah, for a normal person. <laughs> How to get your kids ready for school and make dinner and do homework at night. And you see these people, you're like, what even is this? So, so this book was our crack at trying to say, hey, a lot of the behaviors that we actually recommend our highest performers do can work as well for everyday people. And here's what here's what we think are the most important ones. And here's how to fit them, these habits and behaviors into a really busy time to crunch life. So that was that was one of the genesis. There were some others, but what I discussed. I think we need to remind people that our intention is to take the highest levels of sports performance, Formula One, and take that and transmute those experiences working in these crazy high pressure, gnarly environments of psychological pressure, of, of mental pressure, of deadline pressure, of physical pressure. And say, what can we learn? And more importantly, how do we turn this into a living laboratory so that sport performance and, and even working C-suites isn't just a circus? What we can say is, hey, it's not just entertainment, but actually to inform how we might live our lives. But we've been really trying to take those lessons. And that's really been the heart of our work for the last 20 years is saying, how do we come to understand what we understand? And then we go back to the laboratory, we test it. And that, that laboratory might be Premier Rugby, Premier Soccer, the NFL, the military. We we really do, Julie and I get a lot, we get around. We see a lot of dirty laundry. And then we would realize we should apply those lessons to families because the question isn't just about, hey, how we're treading. We're really obsessed with playing offense. And tr- offense means how can we build capacity so that when you are confronted with the deadline, when your child is in finals and playing in the championships and taking the SAT and applying for school, that first principles are there. So we don't see a step on the familiar rates over and over again. And one of the things I really appreciate about this podcast particularly is that we talk to people all the time about their own health and wellness. And, we, and there was a so reasonable totally. And I'm like, great, let's go ahead and just ask, did your children eat any fruit today? Did your children sleep the minimum amount? Because they're under real pressures, but it's growing, right? It's growing a body, it's healing a body, it's learning new skills. And what we see is that there's a real economy between what parents think they should be doing for themselves and the behaviors and the strategies and tactics they employ with their own children. And that is where we have to stop. So what we're hoping for 
is that we continue to make the household the center of change. We see this, not the institution, the high school or the local coach is here to save us. It's up to the parent and the child together working this out in a really strategic and more importantly, sustainable, long-term, bone-crushing, consistent way. I've been thinking a lot about this book. Yeah, uh, I've been doing a lot of these stretches that you recommend in this book the last couple of weeks. And yeah, it's gotten me thinking a lot, just kind of uh, going through this and doing the tests you recommend, reflecting on my life. But one of the really the big ideas from the book, the, it's called Built to Move and kind of uh, really just this idea of how how much of our life we're not moving um, and how much of our day we spend sitting and our hips are spent bent at this 90 degree angle. And and I guess, yeah, that, that was something you guys really hammered on a lot in the book. It really got me thinking about. I wonder if we could talk a little about that now. Why, why does that matter? Why is that so bad? Or I mean, what? So we spend some time sitting, but then we also like are active. We go to practice after school. So what if we spent six hours in a desk or something? I mean, yeah. Why is that so bad? What we should be thinking about first and foremost is what we've done is try to create benchmarks for people. So if everybody's pretty comfortable with the vital sign, what's good blood pressure? 120 over 80? No, that's just a vital sign. This lets me know that my blood pressure is okay. It's not great. It's certainly not acid blood pressure, but it's also not like hypertensive smoker, you know, guy who was the bar blood pressure. Suddenly, what we when we give people benchmarks, they can start to identify that, hey, maybe I need to focus on this in my life. And one of the things we've done by creating these sort of expanding the concept of vital sign is that half the book is really geared towards what are the essential behaviors that support our physiology and well-being. And that's sleep and nutrition and movement. The other half end up being range of motion vital signs. Because Juliet, what obviously on a podcast, if you look at a physical, you don't actually get physical. They maybe do some blood, they listen to some vital signs. Yeah, but there's nothing physical about it. I don't actually physical. watch how you move. They're you're getting sort of downstream lagging in Yeah, like, are you safe? That's right. Like, <laughs> hey, I noticed that you've been living a way. I said, hey, your blood pressure's high or your cholesterol's out of whack. That doesn't tell you about what you're doing or how you're doing. It just tells you what's, what's happening. So by creating a set, a set of vital signs, we can start to use third-party validation to understand our inputs and the outputs that we're able to express ourselves. So by giving people these ranges, one of the things that we've seen is that there's, or, or we re reconceptualize this, the body is in constant adaptation machine. You are practicing and adapting to your environment. That's why you have a nervous system to sense change and, and to adapt accordingly. So if we're practicing being inactive, if we're practicing sitting in certain positions, for marathon bats. Remember that all of the data and all the research in here isn't our data research. It's the experts. We might be experts in movement. We might be experts in coaching, but Harvard defined sedentary lifestyle and all of the accompanying sort of follow along problems of sedentary physiology of, of changing in how you metabolize fats and sugars and in how your brain functions. That is defined as sitting more than six hours a day total. So you might be able to play a game, play a sport, be active. But what we're seeing is that it's not, it's not taking into consideration that for the vast majority of your day, you're actually engaged in real sedentary behavior. And that is the problem. And then in those kids who aren't active every day, we still have to see is the one behavior that sticks around is doing a lot of sitting. So this isn't about sitting is bad and standing is good. This is about, hey, in order for our bodies to work and to be loaded and to adapt 
we need to think differently about how we exist in our environment. And let me give you an example. We have a friend who has a company called Nature Quant. And I recommend anyone listening to this to go check this app out, Nature Quant. It tells you how much time you spend outside. Does anyone on this podcast not think kids should go outside? Like you have to make it look me in the eye and say, no, no, no kids belong inside of intelligence. <laughs> right. Well, the research that's coming out of this, and this is national research and And this is, by the way, just to interrupt, like, like, is based on people's cell phone data. So you can't lie about it. Your phone knows whether you're in the and your phone knows whether you're inside or outside. And so, this app is collecting that data and reporting on it. And Kelly, so I told you that teenagers, on average, were spending four minute, forty minutes outside. <laughs> Suddenly, we can talk about which secret squat program, what food, but wait, how does these type one? foundational errors in the way our us as humans are interacting, how we feel ourselves, how we care for our bodies, how we move. And what we've added is additional complexity instead of saying, hey, let's make sure we're getting first things first. And that's what we've tried to do. So sitting is the allegory for that. And, and I'll just add a couple of things. That one of the things you tried to do, and I think we're the most proud of in this book, is is not present a bunch of individual habits that people should care about independent of one, one another. What we're trying to say and show people is how tightly coupled all of these behaviors are with one another. Let me give you another example. And, and I think anybody who has kids knows this when they think back to when their kids were toddlers. But what we see in adults is a lot of adults, even if they have exercised for one hour a day, chances are are sitting for most of the rest of their day. And in many cases, have not developed enough sleep pressure in the form of getting enough movement in their day to actually, not in the form of non-exercise activity, to actually be able to go to sleep and sleep well and have a normal sleep cycle. So as I have probably discussed on this podcast, insomnia and sleep issues are rampant and especially in our parent communities. And one of the things people haven't thought about is that when you have a toddler, all you wanna do is like destroy them during the day physically so they fall into their bed. Well, it turns out that that basic principle actually is true for adults too. So but there's a lot of, there's a there's a many ways that people can combat insomnia, IMAS and cold room and whatever. But one of the things that no one has been talking about until we started talking about this book is, hey man, you've got to, you've got to start thinking in the morning about making sure you get enough physical, non-exercise, physical activity in your day outside of your formal exercise to make sure you develop enough sleep pressure to be able to go to sleep when you're ready and sleep well and sleep long enough in the night. But I think that's one of the things that we're really focused on is, is again, it's not just this independent sitting is bad, I need to stand or move more. What we're saying is human beings are designed to move and need to move a lot throughout their day. And it's not just about, there's a thousand reasons why people need to move more and we can get into those, but I don't know that people are making the connection that they're not moving enough, they are not sleeping well. I think that number is shocking, 40 minutes a day, too, of outdoor activity. And it would be hard to find anybody who would think that's enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can I just throw out one there? It's to make the case that if youth sports may be the only time where we can get kids outside, right? So we better take advantage of some of these formalized systems. And they're immediately meeting several needs, like emotional needs, development needs, right? All of the reasons that we do sports of play. Come on, it may be the only time that our children are actually engaged in such a 
And one other similar example is we just saw this uh, this piece of data come out about uh, kids being asked how many vegetables they ate in the last week and vegetables and fruits. And kids are reporting having eaten only one vegetable in the prior seven days and like two pieces of fruit in the prior seven days. So what we're seeing in kids is that they are eating like 70% or 80% of their diet now is ultra processed foods. And, and again, we go back to this, where like it, for us, it seems there, there, and I don't want to oversimplify mental health, for example, but we're having an extreme mental health epidemic in teenagers. And what we see is teenagers aren't sleeping enough. They're not eating whole foods. They're not eating fruits and vegetables. They're getting the vast majority of their calories from ultra processed foods and they're not moving and they're not going outside, all of which are well validated and shoved to improve mental health. So sometimes Kelly and I are like, what are we talking about? Like those should be the first order of business. And, and I don't think families can rely on mental health professionals. This is something that has to occur in the home of sleep eating whole foods, making sure kids are going outside and moving them. These are the basics. And and then if your kid is struggling above and beyond that, of course, like it's great that we have destigmatized mental illness in this country, that there's a lot more support for kids. I'm a fan of that. But man, you've got to start working on some of these basic physical behaviors in the home. It's also, we need, uh, we've done gone much better in this country at top down and certainly our suicide and youth depression, these are alarming rates. And I think it's really great that we are talking about anxiety research since top down approach, giving kids strategies to manage stress, giving kids, so we just live in a different environment. I think any of your Juliet and our Xers and we're like, you know, drink those, we're super tough and look at all our trauma. So we're seeing in our age group the highest amount of dopamine drinking and THC use of all time ever. So I'm like, well, how was your, your Gen X childhood, everybody? <laughs> Turns out it was pretty traumatic. So on this other side is that we want to make sure that we all have a bottom up approach simultaneously, that we're talking and we're very meta. We're not just swinging our feelings, our anxiety at the table and swallowing with food or, or whatever dysfunction, but that we are engaged in the first principles and those first principles or how we win world championships. Those first principles are how we develop your ability and tolerance in the system. One of the things that if you're listening to this to parent, this book applies to you as much as it applies to your kids so that you can have additional resources when your family needs. We see a lot of, talk to a lot of parents who are really functioning the limits of their abilities to cope and manage. One of our friends had a blood handle she discovered she was blue of a diabetic. And the, when she said, hey, I really need some help. And the first one, Jill and I sat down with her, I said, hey, tell us about your sleep. She's like, oh, I'm a terrible sleep. And we're all like, what, what's that about? She said, well, I'm very stressed. She's the primary bedwinner in this family. She has a very high-functioning C-suite job, VP. And we said, well, how do you manage that? How do you, how do you come down? She's like, you drink two bottles of wine every day. Suddenly, what we see, and as Juliet pointed out, until we understand the ecosystem and how these things fit together, we're not going to get her to stop drinking two bottles of wine until we give her strategies to feel less stressed, right? We're not going to improve her sleep until we get her to stop drinking two bottles of wine. We're not going to change her blood panel until et cetera, et cetera, starts to happen. So it's important that we recognize, and this, we, we have admit, body is very tolerant. But again, what we're reading to say is that, hey, we want to bring families in on all of this that we've learned from our world champions. We work with world champion athletes who have blind spots to do. In fact, we gave this book to a lot of world champions. We're like, how's it going? Are you 10 out of 10? And they were like, ooh, seven out of 10. <laughs> didn't eat fiber, don't eat fruits and vegetables, didn't walk, didn't decongest. 
holy moly, my sleep is terrible, but I'm an elite mutant, but it doesn't seem to matter, except for the last two seasons of the World Cup, I've been battling injuries. And it turns out that sleep was related to fueling after sport. And when we start to start to see this as a cogent, packaged whole, all yeah, of these things. Yeah, it's the back to the right word. Lo and behold, we start to see that there's a more tolerance in the system so that you can show up for your parents and your kids and yourself in a more realistic way. The Your parents are going to get sick. Someone's going to get injured. Some deadline's going to happen. Something's going to happen that's coming that's going to add additional stress. If I asked you now, how prepared are you to handle this additional load? What we often find is that people are at the break point. Yeah, people are just sort of operating on the precipice of the cliff and a death in the family or sickness or a stressful work deadline, they, they kind of fall out. They're just operating at the very limits already. And what we're trying to do here is say, hey, these habits in this book can actually expand your limit so that you're operating a mile away from the edge of that cliff. But when these stressful events do happen in your life, you've got some room. You still have some room to be able to, to actually take something else on. Because one of the things I'll add just to contextualize this is everybody's hot to trot about the whole idea of longevity right now. And that's cool, but longevity is actually not a word that we relate to or care for that much. And we prefer the word durability because we don't really, and I think another word people use often is health span, but I think the idea is that Kelly and I want to feel good in our bodies until like we literally do turn 90 and like die in our sleep. That's our, right? We, we want to, we're trying to avoid this sort of long, slow lock theory of aging. But, but what we want is to have a durable body because what we know from our own personal experience in life is that is that hard things happen to humans, every single human. I mean, we've listed a bunch of these things, death, disease, injuries, stressful times at work, stressful times with your kids, world and world world champion. I mean, you name it. It, it. Experiencing stress and difficult times is part of the human condition. We, yeah, we want to know that's coming and we want to have a durable body that's prepared to manage that stress as best as we can. Let me... Let me just double tap on that because again, we're playing offense. We're not playing defense. We see that people aren't doing the basics. Simultaneously, we're interested, remember, in doing something we call reducing session costs. So a lot of our understanding of how pressure works and how all these inter interactions is because we work with the world's greatest athletes and teams. And we're interested in seeing who can work the hardest because universally, whoever works the hardest wins. But what we've done basically is created a model where we worship and celebrate working hard until we crash or we get injured or we run out of steam or we burn out or we, right? And then you can turn around. It's like plausible liability. You're like, look how hard I work. Look how much I support my family. It's not my fault that I'm depressed now or crushing or I've developed this coping strategy that isn't very helpful. When we get our athletes to do these same things, it turns out they can work harder and they can recover and adapt to the stress of more effectively. So all the stress ends up acting like an adaptation response machine. But if you're not sleeping, we really have a hard time changing your body composition, getting out of chronic pain, learning a new skill, growing a body, doing anything that sort of matters. And when we give people the clear line that, hey, we want to use seven hours of sleep as that vital sign metric, that, hey, our goal is the minimum seven. That means you need to be in bed for seven and a half or eight hours of sleep at seven. But if you want to perform, boy, it really is closer to eight, eight and a half. And don't, you, you cannot gaslight me. The research is unequivocal that a seven to eight is our minimum threshold. And if you're performing and you're trying to do on the other side, then you really have to start to think differently about getting more than that. Because again, 
What's our goal here? About to survive. About to try. We're here today with Kelly and Juliet Starrett talking about movement and how parents of teenagers can incorporate more of it into their families. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. We may be viewing high desire, high drive to the fidgeting as a neurological problem when it's actually a genetic coded for, I need to move more. For your little kids, they're squirming on purpose. So have them, have them stay, have them work. Think about how you might shape the environment to account for that squirming. We know that if we could give everyone in our family a pill that would reduce all-cause mortality and morbidity by 50%, you would give everyone that pill. 50% decrease, and that's called walking 8,000 steps a day. It's not the flip-flop. What we can start to say is, what's the foot supposed to do? The best shoe we can put on a kid is no shoe. The second best shoe is the shoe that disrupts the foot the least. When you put a flip-flop on, you fundamentally change how that slip works. In order to keep flip-flop on, when you walk, you clench your front toe down. Your toe becomes rigid. So that's like essentially walking in a ski boot all the time. So if you've turned your foot into a ski boot, you create a lot of stiffness, alter how the foot creates stability and how your big toe works. Most of us are spending the vast majority of our time with our shoulders forward, working on a laptop or a computer, and or looking at our phones. And we're spending many hours of the day doing that. And but look, we're not Luddites. We're on our computers and our phones all day too, just like everybody else. So we're not saying those things in the trash and going move into a year at all. But what we're saying is, except if you want to have full function of your shoulders and be able to do things like, let's think of put your suitcase in the overhead bin, you have turn to your neck all the way. Turn your neck all the way, maybe avoid having neck and upper back pain. Have your pelvic floor work. You need, you need to have your shoulders functioning and doing all the things that shoulder can do, which is a speaking of your feet to shoulders, also this miraculous joint in our body that's, that does a lot of different things. And if you only practice, doing one of the many things the shoulder is supposed to be, which is having your back rounded, your forward, your shoulders forward, and, and having your body look from the side like you're in a C shape. Well, then that's how your body's going to adapt. Want to hear the full episode? Head over to talkingtoteens.com slash register for a free trial of our premium podcast. You get exclusive access to loads of great content with no obligation. And your membership supports the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Get started today with a free trial over at talkingtoteens.com slash register. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.